0: Well, we're going to be in Psalm 25 this morning, and so if you want to turn there, um, we'll jump in there in just a second. But Shakespeare famously uh, theorized that all the world is a stage and that we are merely players. And if that's true, then I think the follow-up question is, well, where's the script? Because whether it's on the silver screen of Hollywood or in the limelight of Broadway, Great scripts make all the difference. So let's take Shakespeare's work, Macbeth. If you were to be able to gather award-winning actors and legendary directors and cutting, with cutting-edge special effects, but you refused to give them the script, they would be helpless to recreate the weightiness of something like Macbeth. Because there's a reason that script, about unchecked ambition, about wanton treachery like we'll see in our passage about some cryptic witches. We're not really sure what they're up to. That script has lasted 400 years, and it's still one of the most coveted opportunities for any actor or actress. That's because the best scripts make the best actors and directors even better. Now, I want us to apply that thought this morning to prayer. I feel like When I'm living in the middle of Macbeth and I have no idea what I'm supposed to think or to say or to do, by God's grace, the Bible gives me my next line. Praise God that he's not left us to our own devices, but he has filled his word with those stage directions, those cues, even the dialogue that helps us to know exactly where we are in the midst of all of this drama. So if all the world is a stage and we are merely players, then we have to learn to trust the script that God has given us in his word. This morning, I I want us to turn to one of my favorite prayers, Psalm 25. Hopefully you've already found it. And I want us to, to try to read it and understand it and lay it up against our lives and allow it to change us so that we can follow this script that God has graciously given us. Psalm 25 will probably be in the middle of your Bible. So Psalm is kind of a smack dab in the middle. And if, whether you're looking at it on your device or you're following along uh, on the page, if you would follow along as I read for us. Psalm 25. Of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, None who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not... The sins of my youth or my transgressions, according to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. His eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and her brightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all His troubles. Mm. Often, the first couple of verses of a psalm uh, give us the keys to unlocking all that follows, and, and that seems to be true here in Psalm 25. So this psalm was originally composed by David. So the anointed king over all of God's people wrote this prayer to God. And the bulk of the prayer is is a personal cry for help. But he's going to end that prayer appropriately as the people's representative crying out for God to help all of the entire nation of Israel. So God is making, David is making this appeal to God. He is turning to God, to his God, it says, and he's lifting up his soul his innermost parts, his most vulnerable parts, and he's bringing them to the Lord, to the covenant-keeping God of Israel and the sovereign of the universe. He's not lifting up his soul to what is false. That's what he warned us in the last Psalm, in Psalm 24, verse four, that we would not lift our, our soul to what is false. He is lifting up his soul to the only thing that is true, to Yahweh, And the heart of this appeal is captured in verse 2. He says, let me not be put to shame. Because at the end of the day, or at the end of all of David's days, he doesn't want to be disgraced. Every other appeal in this psalm is rooted in this first one, let me not be put to shame. Every other request, and there's at least 20 more requests that we find in this psalm, they all flow out of this first request. Even the one that immediately follows, let not my enemies exult over me. It's a poetic echo of the first. So his enemies, if they were to be gloating over him during his life or, or even over at his grave, well, that might be an earthly picture of the eternal shame that David fears. And so David isn't just worried about this life. He's worried about his soul. He's, he's worried about those eternal parts and whether they will carry stains of his shame into the next life. And so he cries, Lord, let me not be put to shame. And, and David knows that this is the kind of request that God hears because David knows the ground rules. He understands how it's all supposed to work. He voices those ground rules in verse three when he says, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed that are wantonly treacherous. So these are the rules. Rule number one, none who wait on the Lord will be put to shame. So waiting on the Lord, it's a metaphor for hoping, uh, for trusting in the Lord. You don't wait on what you either don't think is coming or that you don't think is worth the wait. And David knows that God will come through on his promises and he is absolutely worth the wait. And the the second rule is that those who are wantonly treacherous will be put to shame. Those who, who plot and who scheme to overthrow the Lord and the Lord's will, like we see in Psalm 2, they are treacherous without cause. Without reason. That's what wantonly means in this passage. They are treacherous because their hearts are set against the goodness of God and they rebel at every turn. And David doesn't want to be counted in their number. No, he wants to be counted among those who wait for the Lord. But David can't even wait without help. If he could, Then all he would have to do is just ask the Lord not to put him to shame, and then he would just sit down and wait, and our passage would end at verse 3. But because David can't wait without help, he can't even wait on the Lord without the Lord working in his life. He knows he has lots more he has to bring to the Lord. He knows that the tidal currents of the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to bring him away from waiting and into wantonly treacherous. And so he asks the Lord to help. He cries out to the Lord. And he brings these five requests. That's what I want us to use our time together this morning. I want to look at five requests that come from waiting. If we want to wait on the Lord, if we want to trust in the Lord, then these are the kind of requests we're going to consistently bring to the Lord. We're going to request, make a request for guidance, for mercy, for mercy, for instruction, for grace, and for deliverance. I know I got some note takers, so let me give those to you again. He's going to request for guidance, for mercy, for instruction, for grace, and for deliverance. And What's beautiful about these is they all kind of wrap together in some ways, and you'll see those different requests pop up in different sections, but hopefully we can kind of see some structure as we work through 25 and see those five requests pop up. And what I want us to do is I want us to understand these and see how they apply in our life and see how much we need them, and then we're going to borrow the little one-breath prayers that David lifts up so that we can regularly pray these kinds of prayers to the God who hears these kinds of prayers. So let's start with the first one, the request for guidance. Let's pick back up in verse four. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. You see, waiting on the Lord is not a passive endeavor. It's not something we can be lazy about. It's not idle. It's active. It requires movement. So the imagery that David uses here is someone on a journey. Did you catch it? Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. David doesn't want to walk the paths that lead to treachery and rebellion. He knows that those trails all dead end in death and shame. Instead, he trusts in the Lord. And this trust, it's not stationary. Waiting in this, in this sense isn't immobile. It requires us to act in faith. So knowing that the ways of the Lord isn't something inherent to who he already is or something he can't figure out, David then runs to the Lord. He asks the Lord would, would lead him down those paths to make him know those paths. God has promised that his paths end in green pastures and still waters. And yet, sometimes, to get to those green pastures and those still waters, they have to lead us. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we need him to lead us through that. We're not going to walk through it on our own. And so to be led down those kinds of paths requires in our hearts deep trust and submission. David doesn't trust his own ways, his own paths, his own truth. No, David trusts God's ways, God's paths, God's truth. He trusts that God is the God of his salvation. He, that this is the God who will send his son to be the way, to be the truth, to be the life, and that no one will come to the Father except through him. This is the kind of God he trusts. And so he cries out to God, Lord, give me guidance. And so how do we make this kind of request? Well, we trust the script. And our line is in verse 5. Lord, lead me. Lord, lead me. Lead me. Lead me as I lead my family. Lead, Lead me as I follow those you've placed over me, whether in the government or in the church or in my family. Lead me as I spend this money that you've entrusted to me. Lead me, even if that means through suffering, because I know that your word says that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put me to shame. Exactly what David is praying for. That's what we see in Romans 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so, Lord, I trust you that even as you lead me through the valley of the shadow of death, through struggle, through hardship, that you will lead me to hope. And so I wait, and I know that no, there is no shame at the end of this trial, whatever that trial might be. And so we should often pray, lead me. Because, because we, are, we know in our hearts, we are, we are prone to wander. Prone to wander, we sing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. And so beyond just a prayer for guidance, we also need God to provide us his mercy if we're going to wait on him. So that's our second request, this request For mercy. Even as David waits on the Lord, he knows that he's not always waited on the Lord and that he doesn't currently wait on the Lord perfectly. And so he cries out in verses six and seven Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, according to your steadfast love remember me for the sake of your goodness o lord you see the gap between those who are wantonly treacherous and those who wait on the lord it's not very wide and it's easy for us to accuse others of being rebellious and not inspect that log that's really in our own eye and david knows himself and he knows his bible Well enough to know how quickly our hearts turn away from the one true and living God and instead seek to serve idols. So it seems like David is meditating on the Exodus when he writes this psalm and as he examines his own life. In in particular, I think the episodes that we find in Exodus 32 through 34 really come through in these kinds of prayers. So you'll remember in Exodus, God has rescued his people from Egypt and he's leading them to the promised land. And then in chapter 32, while Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the covenants and the law from God, down in the valley, the Israelites are losing their ever loving minds. They have every reason to trust in the Lord. Every reason to trust in the goodnesses of the promises and the character of God, and they've completely thrown it away. And they've decided to toss in some gold and to create golden calves for themselves and to worship those. They've replaced the Creator with a pitiful creation, and they are wantonly treacherous. They haven't even left the desert yet, and already their hearts have turned from waiting on the Lord to wantonly treacherous, like that. And what does Moses do? Well, what God does is that God brings shame on the wantonly treacherous. He says, It's over, I'm not leading you anymore. You're not my people, I'm leaving you behind. And Moses intercedes on their behalf. And he brings the same kind of requests to God in Exodus 33 and 34 that David brings in Psalm 25. It's the same kind of questions. He's asking God to show them his ways, to guide them, to show mercy on them. And God relents. God shows mercy, not because the Israelites have earned it, They clearly have not earned his favor, but because God is merciful and God reveals that his justice and his mercy are defining attributes of his name and and, and therefore who he is, who he is as a person. And so Exodus 34, 5 and 7 are really key to understanding this. And it's there that it records how the Lord responded to Moses' plea that they not be put to shame that their enemies not triumph over them, just like David's request. This is how God responds. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Brothers and sisters, this is a God worth waiting for. One who is able to enforce the consequences of sin for generations, but one who clearly does not forget iniquity, but who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So fast forward to Psalm 25. David appeals to this mercy, to this steadfast love that has been from of old. He doesn't assume that's merely how God used to act, but who God is now and forevermore. And so he asks God to withhold the punishment he deserves and instead to show mercy. Notice, there's nothing in these verses about David that's worthwhile. He's only described as a sinner, past and present. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves, shows goodness and favor to an undeserving but repentant sinner. And so when we pray, when we pray this prayer for mercy, we pray, Lord, remember me. Remember me. Remember me according to your steadfast love and not according to my sins. You see, that little prayer, remember me, it's more powerful than we think. It's actually one of the most famous prayers in the Bible. Um, You may have forgotten it. But it shows up in Luke 23, verse 42. So as Jesus is is hanging on the cross, there are two convicted thieves, one on his right and one on his left. And one of them mocks the very Son of God to his face. But the other, it says, rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds but this man has done nothing and then the thief turns to the son of God hanging on the cross about to die and he says Jesus remember me remember me when you come into your kingdom he is packing so much into that little prayer it's as if it he is saying, I know I have been wantonly treacherous, and, and I'm paying the earthly penalty now for that, but my only hope in the next life is a crucified Savior. So remember me. Remember me, acor- not according to the sins of my youth and my transgressions, but remember me according to your steadfast love and mercy, Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember me. Some of you think that you're too far from God, that there's no hope of mercy for you. That the sins of your youth or of last night or of this morning, they're they're beyond the power of God to save. But his mercy is so much more. You don't have to be defined by the sins of your youth or your transgressions. You can turn and trust in the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, and he will show you mercy. Amen. Praise God. Some of you have forgotten how much mercy you need. You mistakenly think that you're a lot closer in your own strength to, want, to waiting than to wanton. And that it was a simple matter for the Lord to add you to his team. You were a, a first-round draft pick, if you would. And I would encourage you to regularly pray this prayer. To pray to the Lord, remember me according to your steadfast love and mercy. Because the discipline of regularly bringing that to the Lord will remind you how easily forgettable you are in your sin. The request to remember me should come from a place of humility, but in God's mercy, it also works to instill humility in us. And, and we need to be humble because what our passage will tell us is that's the only kind of sinner that the Lord mercifully interacts with. Look at verses eight and nine. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. And and that brings us to our third request, this request for instruction. Because don't miss how shocking verse eight really is. It says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he, and what should we expect? Therefore he demolishes sinners in the way. He's good, he's upright, he's perfect, he's powerful, he is the Lord. Therefore he rightly condemns those who have been wantonly treacherous. Therefore, he extinguishes all his enemies. No, there's mercy here. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. And which sinners does he instruct? Well, not all sinners, but those who are humble, who fear the Lord, who keep his covenants and his testimonies, verse 10. Those are the ones he instructs. And, and how is it possible then that we qualify? How can we know his covenant and his testimonies? And how can we possibly keep them? Well, he's gracious to instruct sinners. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers that we can't do this on our own. And so he teaches us. He makes us them to know his covenants. And how does he do it? Well, again, by his mercy. Look at verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. How do we know his covenants? It's by his friendship. By his friendship, he makes his covenants known to them. This idea of friendship here in the text, it's, it's a sweet and it's an intimate term. So you, you may have an English translation in your lap that says something like, the counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him, or the Lord confides in those who fear him. All of them are trying to get at this intimate relationship that's shocking, an intimate relationship between sinners and the sovereign of the universe between those who should be excluded from his counsel, but who have been brought in, enemies who have become his friends, the foolish who have been given his wise counsel. It's the friendship that Jesus offers in in John chapter 15 to all those who will abide in him, who will obey his commands, who keep his covenants. And so if this friendship is offered to us, how do we keep this friendship? Well, it's, it's offered to those who fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is to respect Him, to, to know that He can't be taken for granted or, or presumed upon, uh, to recognize that there are consequences for disrespecting Him, for not following Him. And the fear of the Lord, it's not a place of, of sorrow, but a place of great rejoicing. The fear of the Lord, it's a balm to our soul. John Flavel, hundreds of years ago, described it this way. He said, the fear of the Lord will swallow up the fear of man. A reverential awe and dread of God will extinguish the creature's slavish fear. Listen to this, as the rain puts out the fire. As we grow in the fear of the Lord, all other fears, and we have so many other fears in this life. As we grow in the fear of the Lord, all other fears dissipate. As we grow in our understanding of the Lord, his covenants are made clear and our hope in them is made more sure. As, as our appreciation of the, the wonder of God deepens, then his counsel becomes sweet to us. Like, like the whisperings of a friend. And so how do we pray for instruction? Well, the quick one breath battlefield prayer showed up back in verse five when it says, teach me. Teach me, O oh Lord, teach me. Lord, Lord, I need to be taught. I, I don't understand. I, I want to follow my own ways and not yours. And so teach me your ways. Teach me your attributes. Teach me your covenants teach me your promises, teach me to number my days, teach me wisdom, teach me your statutes, teach me your laws, teach me to have good judgment, teach me to do your will, teach me to fear you above all. And God loves to answer this prayer as a friend loves to teach a friend. And he does this by his Holy Spirit, through his word, in the context of his church. That's the pattern that God has given us and how he instructs us. By his Holy Spirit, through his word, in the context of his church. So let me encourage you, as you desire to be taught by God, then put yourself in places to learn about the ways of the Lord. Examine your schedule and pray to the Lord. Lord, teach me, teach me early and often this week. Lord, cause me to maximize my learning opportunities. Lord, lead me to change what needs to change so I can learn more from you. And so you need, maybe need to better set aside time each day to be in God's word. You need to maybe think about some of your transition times, like your commute or while you're doing chores or or, or working on things around the house. And maybe you need to start leveraging things like podcasts and audiobooks and and sermon recordings to, to maximize those times to learn from the Lord. Maybe before you leave this morning, you need to stop by the bookstall and, and scan and order a book and commit to read that book, or, or to re- better yet, to read it with another believer to better learn from the Lord. Maybe it means that you need to change something about your Saturday routine to better set yourself up for your Sunday routine. Because one of the best ways that God has set you up, set up your week to learn from him, to learn by his spirit through his word in the context of his church is the preached word of God. So every Lord's Day, at least 52 times a year, the pastors of this church make sure that the gospel is faithfully preached to you. And, And here's what that means practically. Someone who loves God deeply and who loves his word thoroughly and who loves you, that person spends significant time each week, 15 hours or more, praying, studying, meditating, and preparing to explain, illustrate, and apply God's word to your life. That is a gift to you. And because it's a gift to you, I would encourage you to prioritize that gift. As you pray, Lord, instruct me, prioritize one of the chief ways God has set up your week to learn from him and be instructed in him. So so come here ready to listen, ready to hear from God's word. If possible, read the sermon passage in advance. Uh, remove whatever distractions you have to when you're in here. Maybe it means leaving your phone in the car for a couple hours. Come prepared to take notes. Write down the application points. Write down specific application points. I'm gonna do this this week. And then when we're done here in just a few minutes, take the opportunity while it's fresh on your mind and with someone else to discuss the sermon with someone else in the room. Don't leave the room until you hear how that sermon was an encouragement or an exhortation or a blessing to someone else and you have the chance to say the same. And and, and leverage your time over lunch or maybe this evening, times when you're with others to make the most of this gift. These things will only deepen our appreciation of God and it will instill more humility in our soul. And the humility that it takes to be taught this way doesn't come from us but comes from God and we need it because God opposes the proud but he gives what church? He gives grace to the humble And, and that's our fourth appeal the request for grace look at your Bibles verse 16 turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted the troubles of my heart are enlarged Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. What David asks for now, so that he will not be put to shame, is grace. And grace is more than just mercy. Mercy, remember, it's when we don't receive the curse we do deserve. And grace is when God gives us blessing that we don't deserve. So mercy and grace, they're they're two sides to the same coin. And you can see why David in this passage has asked for both. He asked for mercy, that God would not remember his sins. And then he's asking for grace, that God would forgive his sins, that he would pardon his sins, that he would lead him in the paths of righteousness. And so let me ask, have you trusted in Jesus Christ in this way? Have you prayed, Lord, forgive me? Forgive me for my sins and my guilt. Forgive me for how I've run from you, how I've rebelled against you, how I've covered myself with sin and with shame. Lord, forgive me for the ways I've brought on my own afflictions, my own loneliness, my own troubles, my own distresses. Lord, look on these and forgive me. Because God is not a God who merely forgets when he chooses not to remember our sins and our transgressions. It's because he's placing them on another. He's placing them on the one who would be our way, our truth, our life. He is placing them on Christ. Christ, the one who never needed to be alone because he was perfectly content forever in the Trinity, and yet was left forsaken on the cross the one who created all things by the word of his mouth and yet chose to remain silent like a lamb before its shears he was smitten by god and afflicted for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when we ask God to forgive us, when we cry out to God, as David does in verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. We are asking that He would take our guilt, our shame, our rebellion, our transgressions, and place them on the one who had none of those, but who was willingly who willingly took them on himself so that he might pay the penalty for them in his death and seal our pardon with his resurrection. And that very one now offers to all who would pray this prayer in steadfast trust in God, he offers them pardon. He promises to forgive. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would right now. Right now, turn and trust in Christ as your only hope for salvation. Repent of your sins. Confess that they are great, but that your only hope, like the thief on the cross, is not in your strength, but in a crucified and resurrected Savior. And I pray that as you pray that prayer, that you would trust in him for this life and for the next, and that you would come and talk to us about it. If you have questions about what that would look like, or if that's what you've done just now or this morning, we would love to know and to encourage you with it. Come find me, come find Matt, one of the pastors here. Honestly, anyone who's sitting next to you would love to rearrange their day to spend it talking with you about the goodness of the Savior, answering your questions and helping you to walk faithfully with him. And so tell someone about that. Ask those questions. We would love to help. Because forgive me is ever on the lips of those who have been forgiven. We are constantly praying this prayer. And God has the power and the willingness to deliver us from our greatest need, from our sin, and from the just punishment that we deserve in eternal death. And because we can trust him with that, then we can trust him that he has the power and the willingness to deliver us from every other lesser affliction. And that's why our final request is the request for rescue. Look as we close at 19 through 22. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. David turns here to the earthly threats on his life, which, as we have seen, stand as representatives of those greater threats on his eternal soul. And he knows that he can trust in God to deliver him from his human foes because he has trusted in God to deliver his very soul. And so, brothers and sisters, we can do the same. I don't know what enemies and foes look like for you today. I don't know how the world is expressing its hatred for you. I only know that it does hate you because it hates our savior. And and, and he told us that it would hate us. And and according to verse 19, it hates us with a deep hatred, with, with a violent hatred. So we don't need to be surprised when the world hates us. Instead, we need to find our refuge in God. For there is a great blessing, according to Psalm 2, verse 12, for all who take refuge in the Lord. So I don't know if that enemy is in your home. Maybe it's an unbelieving spouse or a a wayward child who's, who's wreaking havoc on your life. Maybe that enemy is at work or at school. Uh, It it could be that the world at large that's antagonistic to you trusting in the Lord and following his ways. And even if none of of those are clearly opposing you, well, we know we have a spiritual enemy who's prowling around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. And despite all these foes, despite all these threats, we have a God who can conquer all of them. So, pray this prayer for rescue, Lord, deliver me. Deliver me, deliver me from the hands of my enemies. And that that rescue may not come in the way that you would design it, or in the timing that you would prefer. But as we've seen, this prayer for rescue flows from a heart that is what—it's waiting on the Lord. It's trusting in the Lord. David prays that God would show him his ways, his ways, plural, all his ways. So God doesn't have just a singular path that he might lead you down. It might be an an unexpected journey that he's planned for you. And we saw back in verse 10 that all of God's paths, will they lead to steadfast love and faithfulness. So we can trust that we will not be put to shame because we take refuge in him. He will preserve us so we can wait for him. And so we pray, Lord, deliver me. Deliver me from cancer. Deliver me from this difficulty. Deliver me from my fear of man. What, what can man do to me? I take refuge in you, Lord. Deliver me. A, a while back, I was discussing this passage with a buddy of mine Who's serving overseas in a, in, a, in a Muslim context? And he's learning the language and he's learning the culture so he can more effectively communicate the gospel uh, there. And ultimately he, he hopes to be a part of starting churches uh, there in that country. And, and he recently had a conversation with his language partner. He likes to pose questions like: okay, if I if I were to ask these kinds of questions to the Lord, to God, what, what would I say? What are the kinds of words and expressions? I could use in prayer. And his language partner, who's not a deeply religious person, but who understands the, the, the Muslim worldview, he, he gave him a, particularly, a particular canned prayer to pray. There was nothing in the prayer that he gave him that had anything to do with the requests that my buddy wanted to bring to God. But unfortunately, that, that was his only option. A mindless, thoughtless, impersonal, canned prayer to an impersonal God. Those were the only words he was allowed to pray. And my buddy was reflecting with me about how shocking and humbling and wonderful it is that we can bring Psalm 25 kinds of prayers to God. That we can ask the God of the universe to lead us and to remember us and to teach us and forgive us and deliver us. And through the countless ways he has written our individual stories, we can trust this kind of script in the innumerable ways our lives will take shape because we have a God who hears these kinds of prayers, who has given us these kinds of prayers and who wants us to pray these kinds of prayers to him. I pray that you would pray these kinds of prayers because we have a God who hears. We have a God worth waiting for. Let's pray to him now. Holy God, Father God, Creator God, Saving God, it is humbling that we can bring these requests to you, that we're not left on our own to figure out the drama and the difficulty and the hardship of this life, but we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because of the work of our savior, Jesus Christ, who draws us to himself. Lord, we pray that we would pray early and often and that by your grace and in your mercy, Through your Holy Spirit, through your word, in the context of your church, that you would do much in our life. And that the fruit that you bear in us would be to your glory, our good, and the good of others. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.